This is a No Dogma podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and I'm back at the Localytics offices in downtown Boston tonight, joined by Michael Kloss, Technical Director of the Data Platform. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at Localytics? Uh, yeah, so I run the Data Platform team, and we're responsible for all the backend infrastructure relating to data uh, processing. So now Localytics, we have a lot of data. You know, we have over a petabyte of data. And we do some really cool stuff with our product as far as providing real-time, low-latency uh, analytics um, on that data, as, as well as driving uh, some marketing engagement products for apps. Tonight, though, we're going to spend most of our time not talking about localytics. Maybe towards the end, we'll come back to yeah. it. And tonight, we're going to primarily focus on the world of big data. Yeah. So can you maybe give a quick overview of what that means now? Well, yeah. So one thing is, you know, big data is such a, you know, terrible uh, buzzword that it's become. But, you know, there are definitely uh, challenges relating to having a ton of data that are unique uh, that we need to be aware of. Um, you know, one of the interesting things has been how the ecosystem has evolved. Um, you know, ever since, um, you know, Google obviously uh, revolutionized the big data world uh, internally. Um, you know, around 2000, um, with, within their systems with MapReduce and, uh, uh, the Google file system. And, you know, after they, um, published, uh, the research papers and, um, Doug Cutting and, um, everyone else involved in the Hadoop open source project, um, you know, circa 2005 has opened up, you know, the world of, you know, big data processing to everyone. Um, and since then, you know, that's, that was 10 years ago, you know, yeah. and since then, you know, the ecosystem has, uh, really blossomed and, you know, now there's kind of a sense that maybe it's a little overwhelming. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things that I, I've seen is that, you know, as far as like trends, as far as like what's interesting, uh, in regards to what's happening in the big data, uh, ecosystem right now, are a couple of concepts. One is that uh, there's a strong focus on bringing together batch and stream processing. Uh, this is relatively new. We see this with projects like uh, Apache Flink and you know Spark with Spark Streaming. Uh, those projects also demonstrate another trend, which is to have a unified API for batch and. Before we move on, though, oh, what sorry. is batch and stream processing? Sorry, yes. So, uh, batch processing, um, is, is, is basically when you kick off, uh, you know, a job to process a ton of data at once. Like the boundaries get. Overnight kind of thing, maybe. Yeah. Or, you know, even like, um, you know, database query could be considered kind of a batch. Um, streaming, um, has become a little muddy. Um, you know, generally, uh, with streaming, uh, we traditionally spoke about, processing one um you know data point or set of data like uh one like uh packet of data at a time uh but um you know very few real world systems need to to look at one packet at a time and now actually what's emerged is a concept of micro batching uh which is not batch because the batches are very small they're either defined by um, a, a small uh, size of data or often a time window 
such as I'm going to collect five seconds of data, 10 seconds of data. And actually, that's really critical. Micro-batching uh, is critical because micro-batching uh, allows you to use some of the batch concepts on a small batch of data. And because the batches are happening so quickly, it is basically close enough to streaming and real-time for most use cases. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of the separation, even though it's gone a little muddier. Would Internet of Things be an example of something that might use stream processing, maybe data coming in from medical sensors or you know, yes. jogging sensors? Uh, yes, though, um, you know, I think um, true stream processing um, is probably used mostly in uh, financial okay. and in um, security. Uh, we need to react. But honestly, in many of those use cases, uh, micro-batch is good enough. Um, so I think as far as the uh, you know big data, um, the open source community, uh, we're mostly concentrating on lighter streaming use cases where um, micro-batching is perfectly fine. I knocked you off your, your, your flow. You were talking about some of the Apache projects that yes. allow this. Yeah, so yeah, so um, yeah, I was, I was speaking about some of the trends. So you know, one of which was um, combining batch and stream processing. And, you know, it's good that we uh, talked about micro-batching because it does allow you to use some of the batch algorithms um, in a streaming context. And that has really helped us to unify the APIs uh, and some of the algorithms. Uh, the other thing that is uh, another major trend is uh, traditionally we've had um, database systems or data processing systems that were either um, specialized for transactional processing or analytic processing. So, you know, back in the old days of, you know, RDBMSs of relational databases, uh, they were actually pretty good at both workloads, both, you know, transactional uh, processing, which by that I mean like things like um, single record retrieval, um, inserts, deletes, updates, you know, data management tasks, and analytical processing, meaning, you know, large uh, range scans, analytics on the data, uh, group buys, uh, those types of queries, mostly on the read side. And, you know, RDBMSs, um, many relational databases were good at both. Uh, but then we saw um, kind of a split between the ecosystems uh, because uh, many, um, there were systems or use cases that came out that, needed even more performance out of transactional processing. So we started getting NoSQL stores, which are pretty much mostly specialized in transactional processing. Um, you know, we have, you know, DynamoDB, Cassandra, you know, Mongo. Um, and they kind of um, extended that use case that beyond where relational bases could take transactional processing. On the other hand, we started getting specialized analytics systems. You know, for example, MPP databases. What's MPP? Uh, uh, multiple parallel processors. So here, these are horizontally distributed uh, analytic uh, databases. Uh, you know, some examples are like Vertica, Redshift, uh, Greenplum, and we saw specializations um, in these two types. In these two, uh, like databases specialized for these two types of processing. Now. Um, you know, there's many reasons why, but um, we've seen a convergence in the use cases. So 
the OLTP NoSQL systems are now very concerned about doing analytics on their system. So Cassandra, for example, has created um, really close integration with Spark. Uh, Spark is a open source framework for uh, analytic processing, and now it hooks really cleanly into Cassandra. You know, uh, these other database systems have expanded their analytics capabilities because one of the things that we've realized is that, um, you know, you need to get insights on that transactional data and moving the data into an analytics store is very painful. Uh, and, and often the process is not, you know, it's difficult to get reliable and there's a lot like impedance mismatch between the two different data models. Uh, so uh, bringing those together, um, uh, bringing analytical and transactional processing is not a trend. So for example, a couple of um, like uh, commercial or an open source databases are, are new and working on this. One is uh, CytusDB, uh, which is uh, essentially a clustered uh, Postgres. So Postgres is a great general purpose database and if you can make it scale horizontally, uh, you can make it uh, a database that's really good at both workloads. Another one, for example, is MemSQL, uh, which was recently uh, open sourced and it's also another database that's good at both workloads. Um, I just have one final trend I wanted to, to talk about. Um, you know, with um, Google and with MapReduce, uh, one of the, one of the beauties of that initial, uh, ecosystem was, and this also applies to the MPP, uh, analytical databases is that, um, they got performance by combining storage and compute. And so you horizontally scale out, but you make sure that when you distribute a query workload, that the parts of the query that need, that need to execute on, uh, uh, on a part uh, on some data that you know that executes locally and then you collate the results um, across the cluster and one of the things that has been happening in the last couple of years is kind of a move away from combining uh, storage and compute and we're now starting to see many people want to separate the two and the main reason for separating the two is because your compute and your storage are scaling differently. Um, and it's also much easier to, especially when you have tons of data like us, like you need different tiers of storage that are at different cost, you know, factors. Uh, and it's very difficult when you tie everything together on one system. And, you know, and one of the main technologies that, you know, especially in the startup world and, uh, that folks are using is S3. Uh, you know, you know, S3 is Amazon service, uh, just a general object store. And what's beautiful about it is that many, um, different types of data processing tools, uh, integrate really nicely with S3. And now, um, and S3 is, um, you know, extremely performant, uh, for what it is. Um, so now you can, you have the ability to elastically scale compute separate from your storage and s3 itself is like kind of amazing because it's, it's practically infinitely scalable as far as i can tell and like um it also has um you know a ridiculous uh availability uh number so you know for data processing you know s3 has been uh 
you know, true revolution. Where do you see all this going maybe over the next five years? Because I think looking beyond that's too difficult. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think, um, you know, one, one of the challenges in the ecosystem has been um, operational stability um, and ease of use. And, you know, this is where really I think Spark has taken the lead. Uh, you know, Spark has really concentrated um, on making it easy to deploy and maintain a cluster. So Spark, I remember someone saying to me, it's kind of like a superset of Hadoop. Um, kind of like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's <laughs> the relationship between Hadoop and Spark is very like difficult to characterize, okay. <laughs> um, because um, so Spark is part of the ecosystem, and I think like you know probably the easiest way to think about it is that it's a replacement for uh, MapReduce as a way. Not MapReduce the algorithm, but MapReduce the technology of accessing and querying data. Uh, but really, what's what's made uh, Spark really special is, um, you know, uh, not only the operational ease, but also just the ability. Uh, they have a, a concept of an in-memory cache, uh, which you can use, uh, so you don't need to go back to uh, HDFS or S3 uh, every time you want to do an iterative query over a result set. Um, but, you know, Spark is definitely the hot new thing uh, on the market. Um, you know, Localytics, uh, you know, we're running um, a couple of our products in production on Spark, and we've been very happy with it. Uh, but, you know, the reason I mentioned Spark is because it seemed to address a lot of the major difficulties um, in the ecosystem around the complexity of the ecosystem and the, dif- the difficulty around oper- operations. Sorry, but I, again, I, I took us off the whole no, thing. No, where, where do you see the the future of the whole ecosystem going? Um, Is it more again like you, you were saying earlier that the separation of compute and data? Um, yeah, no, I I think um, you know I think like projects like Spark are on the right path, and um, yeah, we're gonna see uh, data processing. Like I said, so like you know S three, it's a you know, proprietary like Amazon technology, even though, you know, Azure and other clouds have them. Uh, OpenStack has their own version of it. And I think we're, uh, in a way, it kind of like reminds me of the, you know, the good old days when you had like a SAN uh, mm. back in your database. It's kind of a similar concept. Uh, but I think, yeah, what we're going to see is um, that trend continue. Um, we're also... Um, you know, going to kind of, we're, because of the convergence of uh, transactional analytical processing, we actually, I feel like we might see a deterioration in the concept of the data lake. And uh, the reason being that, uh, you know, especially like companies like ours, we have more, we have, we have a lot of pressure to deliver uh low latency real-time results on our data and the data lake kind of has this really big the concept of data lake is that you take in your data and maybe you have it in some primary uh, systems like transactional systems and then you move it into this lake for analysis like for there's uh, many more businesses and many more use cases 
coming out that are similar to uh, our business at Localytics, where that step of moving it to the data lake is not is a non-starter because you need to provide analytics on the data as soon as you receive it. And this is where that combining of transactional analytical processing really comes in handy uh, because as soon as your primary transactional um, uh, databases, which are, you know, behind your, uh, you know, RESTful services or other APIs, as soon as they get the data, it's available for analytics. And what we're seeing is um, we're seeing as well a kind of a, a rejuvenation of the concept of query federation, which used to be pretty hot back in the 90s. So query query federation is the concept that you're able to reach out to different data sources and combine the results. So in a way, it's kind of like the anti-data lake because instead of moving the data to a central location, you're just reaching out your compute to these different places. And, um, you know, so what we're seeing is, for example, Spark, uh, I'll go back to Spark because it, it really is super hot right now, um, has this concept of external data sources where you can query uh, different, uh, you can plug in connectors to talk to different types of databases. Um, as well as, you know, you take a look at a technology that's picking up steam like Presto, which is a open source project from Facebook for providing really fast SQL queries. Um, the, the primary use case for Presto, like, you know, many of these engines is to query, you know, HDFS or S3, uh, very performantly. It does a great job of that, but it also has the ability to connect to, you know, to Cassandra and to other, um, you know, relational databases and compile the results together. So, um, you know, I think th that is also, um, you know, so like maybe those, those trends are kind of, you know, like, um, you know, I don't know if they're contradictory, uh, but like, you know, cause like, you know, S3 makes a really beautiful, uh, data lake and, um, you know, Presto and Spark allow you to have this really, uh, you know, really powerful, uh, federation engine, uh, to pull data together as, as soon as it's available. Um, but both of those, uh, together are really exciting because it's making it a lot easier for us to build, uh, you know, high quality data driven products that perform at, you know, a, a ridiculous scale, um, and, you know, provide very timely results. You've mentioned things like Cassandra, Hadoop, Spark, Presto, HDFS, and then you've mentioned them in combination with themselves. If a company, <clears throat> excuse me, has a large volume, a large volume of data that they want to perform analysis on, where do they even start? How do they pick what, some of these technologies, one or more? Yeah, I think um, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, you know, it frequently comes up almost like a joke when you know, like, you know, someone will ask, like, you know, kind of like, what's your stack? And like, you know, it used to be back in the nineties, like you'd say, Oh, well, Oracle. Yeah. So, <laughs> but now you have to like literally rattle off yeah. uh, 15 things. And it's like, you know, we're, we got, you know, Zookeeper, Spark, Storm. Um, 
And I think that that is a challenge, like, uh, you know, just to get over the fact that there's so many technologies. But, you know, the thing to, and, you know, the reason there's so many technologies is because uh, of the, you know, open source software revolution. And what that's allowed people to do is not only to build competing products, but also to uh, build products uh, or projects that are very specialized for certain use cases. Uh, so um, yeah, it <laughs> it is it is quite amazing. Um, I think the the big thing to um, you know when uh, trying to approach the the ecosystem, uh, you know the other thing we're getting now is that you have these big companies that are trying to sell you on bundled solutions because they're saying like we're taking away this complexity. Like here's a, a proof set of technologies that you should use it. And turnkey. He, yeah, turnkey. Yeah. And here's like, you know, uh, and like, you know, I've seen them where they have like a diagram of like, you know, this is the way you do data processing now. And they have like 30 things all connected. Um, and I, I think that can be very challenging. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there's um, a super great answer to it, um, except that you know, when you're, when you're starting, um, on a big data project and you want to use these open source tools, uh, you have to, um, yes, you have to study the ecosystem, but you have to really understand, you know, your use case. Um, and, you know, cause there are technologies that are, you know, built for your use case. And the other thing I would, I would say is that, um, Oftentimes when you're trying these different technologies, if you, you know, kind of do a POC, you're playing around, you know, at night, you know, like, you know, I want to see how, you know, if I can stand up a, you know, Kafka cluster. And, um, I, I, one thing I would say is that if, you know, if you have trouble setting up and deploying a small test, then that's probably an indicator that uh, you shouldn't be using that technology because, um, it's not mature enough yet. And, um, but um, as far as identifying a technology to fit your use case, um, it is it is definitely uh, it is definitely a challenge. Uh, I, I won't lie. Uh, it, yeah. I, well, this leads us very nicely on to the next thing. I, I came across some uh, an article about some studies done by PricewaterhouseCoopers and Iron Mountain saying that most big data projects fail, and I think it was. A startling four percent are only getting realistic value out of it. What what's going on? Yeah, I think we we come back to this complexity. So so I think there's also perhaps a problem with a traditional you know IT product man, project management when it comes to uh, setting up these these projects. Like um, I think. You know, as as engineers, like, you know, as engineers, we naturally have a tendency to want to a, you know, boil the ocean, and b, um, just build this perfect solution that you know it meets all the use cases, and I think we we lose sight of you know concepts that are maybe more product driven, such as an MVP, um, and you know, when, when you're talking about a large amount of data, it's very easy to say, okay, well, you know, I won't get any utility out of this big data project 
unless I put in all the data. Mm. Uh, and that's your first mistake because uh, if you're trying to ramp up from zero bytes to you know, even 500 terabytes or a petabyte, and you know, like, oh yeah, we need all this data. Uh, you're you're probably gonna fail because that ramp up is something that needs to be done incrementally. Uh, there's many challenges, many lessons that you must learn along the way, and this is and you know, if you wanted to do that, first off, it will probably take you uh, two years to uh, even complete the project, and then you'll probably find out that uh, no one wants it. So. Um, you know, I think you have to kind of approach your kind of mentality more of a startup where you identify a uh, specific use case and you you don't go and build uh, a solution for that one use case in isolation. Uh, you need to involve the team that's consuming it, whether it's, uh, you know, a set of data analysts or a set of engineers somewhere. They need to be uh, involved in the project. And this is really where, you know, some of the agile principles such as, you know, people attending each other's scrums uh, comes really in handy because you have that communication. And, you know, as the big thing with selecting an MVP is that it needs to meet a real need um, that the, the, your consumers are invested in wanting to have solved so that they will come to your meetings. They will participate in like your alpha, uh, and they will help you drive the project so that it's actually useful. And the other thing, as I mentioned, like about ramping up from zero bytes to petabyte is like, um, you know, you cannot let yourself, um, or in this case, your customer drive you to trying to do something with all the data. You need to identify, you know, a, a really, real valuable use case with a subset of the possible data. And honestly, like if you can't find that for the you know, consumer that you know you kind of have targeted, then you should go and find a different uh a different customer to work with uh first because you might be setting yourself up for failure. So, you know, these are some of the, you know, I've been doing uh you know, um these types of projects for my whole career and you know, these are some of the some of the big lessons I've learned from from doing. I think I, you know, uh, finally I'm I'm kind of getting some of those principles right. But um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a challenge. But I would say like you need to approach uh, a big data project like a startup, and uh, you know, read like lean startup and start from there. But large companies can't do that, and they don't do that, and they won't. No, you you can. They don't though. But, no, I no. mean, a lot, I've been in companies, and you know, it, it sort of becomes the, the fanciful word. Oh, we should be in the cloud. Let's have a project to get into the cloud. I yes. was at a company that did that and it failed after about two months. Yeah. So I don't know, like, um, so my experience is like, you know, even, you know, in big companies, you have small teams, right? So, you know, I've, I've been in my share of big companies, but, you know, like when in one of the companies, we were the first uh, team to actually go into the cloud, uh, and we were doing our big data project in the cloud. That was really fun. But like, um, you know, uh, as a small team, we operated uh, as a startup. And, you know, even like within a big company, like you have to have this kind of attitude of uh, entrepreneurship. Yeah. Like you can't let the processes get in your way of doing things. Uh, you know, you can't let the, the company culture 
again, your way of doing things incorrectly. Like, you know, we all know that. So, for example, like, you know, maybe your company is a big software company um, that does like shrink wrap release of products. And they need to kind of, you know, they can justify using like a waterfall process or something draconian, right? Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that you need to apply those processes to your team and your project. Uh, you know, your team and your project can, you know, operate uh, independently. And, you know, um, I think that's, that's, that's another key is like, uh, like I mentioned, like if you approach the big, a big data project, like a startup initiative, and you have that entrepreneurial sense, mm-hmm. uh, then you will succeed. That's fair enough. You're going to need buy-in from from the C levels and the like for something like that. But as long as you just need a credit card, no, that's fair. <laughs> Let's say you happen to be one of the very small percentage of companies that has been successful in getting their data project going. And if they've taken your advice and they've started small, how do they start scaling up to what you're talking about with petabytes of data? Yeah. So you know. So the first thing is that uh, there are, you know, like I mentioned, there are many lessons to be learned along the way. You know, so when you have that MVP, uh, there is nothing wrong with starting with a database that you know only lasts you six months. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, like in the startup world, pretty much all startups um, start on MySQL or Postgres. Yeah, and same with local links. Like a one, <laughs> once upon a time, our product fit in uh, MySQL server, but you yeah, know, as it's free, yeah. And as we grew, um, you know, we 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 had to scale beyond that, and you know, but I think the the thing there is that um, you know we have to always concentrate on the value of the product and not necessarily uh, be enamored with the technology that's driving it. You know, like if you have, uh, if you're starting small and you just jump straight to having a Hadoop cluster and Spark and all this stuff, then it's probably not going to work out well because, you know, those technologies are not meant to be used on small. Mm. So they're operationally too difficult to be practical for a small set of data. Um, you know, whereas like a single Postgres instance would be really great. So there's, there's a book, Small is Beautiful by uh E.F. Schumacher, uh, which is, is really a, a wonderful book. And, you know, one of the things that uh, E.F. Schumacher was uh, responsible for was introducing this concept of appropriate technology to um, international development. And the concept of appropriate technology is that if you're, um, you know, for example, in the um you know in the desert in like you know rural india and you're you want to build a you know windmill or some kind of water purifier or you know something like that you could have a first world country like siemens flying uh a product um and you could pay you know millions of dollars uh, for it or um you can look around the materials you have at hand and build something that solves your use case for you. So, you know, when I look at, you know, companies starting with the Hadoop cluster, I'm thinking like, this is like Siemens flying in this big, like nuclear reactor or whatever, like when you don't need it. Right. Um, 
And um, when we use, uh, you know, it's okay for something to have a limited uh, limited life, life yeah. shelf, yeah, sh- shelf life. Yes, I think a lot of companies don't do that, and they probably should do it far more yes. and accept that these things will expire, yeah. and that you'll have learned a good lesson by making it small, and then yes. version two will be. Yeah. And more. like I said, the big thing is like a lot of folks are focused on the technology and not on the value, and that's the first critical mistake. Like, if you if you are going. If you are, if you have a successful MVP of a small project on like Postgres instance, and that instance uh, exceed, you know, like you're having trouble scaling it up or it can't scale anymore, then, you know, then you can um, introduce, you know, distributed technology. Um, you know, if you need to start applying machine learning analytics, then you can start doing something. Um, and I think that's one of the keys. So then let's just say you go way beyond that. Okay. Uh, and you know, we're talking about, you know, so like local Linux, like, you know, we're over right now. Like we have, um, you know, we've, we've moved into a different, um, mode of scaling. Um, you know, now it's not just, you know, we have, we have all of our systems are distributed, horizontally scalable. But now we've moved into the area of um, uh, workload optimization and specialization. And this is where, you know, we are now, you know, we, we, we are in the world where, you know, we are able to evaluate and choose like, you know, different open source or commercial technologies uh, to fit particular workloads. You know, where we have like, um, you know, we may have a, um, you know, a data store that, you know, doesn't do certain workloads well. It, it did them well enough like a year ago, but now it's struggling to do them. Now we're saying, okay, let's isolate these workloads and move them somewhere else that will work better. And, you know, when you get into, um, you know, our scale data, you know, you start your architectural diagram starts getting a little sprawly uh, because uh, you're trying to isolate workloads and use cases in technologies that specialize in them. So like for us, like, you know, we're pretty comfortable, you know, talking about all the different technologies we use, but like, you know, you know, we, we have to use them. So. Mm. so very briefly before we wrap up, can you describe some of the technologies you are using? Mm. Yes. Um, you know, a, a local, so what I'll say is that, um, we, um, you know, we're, we heavily leverage, um, S3. We have we leveraged a couple of MVP databases, and you know what we started investing more in now is um, in this year we introduced Spark into our stack, and we are driving several uh, products in production, which has been really fun in Spark, and we're continuing to scale out that environment. Uh, we're also making uh, pretty heavy investments in Presto, uh, which is Facebook's open source project. Uh, as well as uh, Parquet as a data format. So like now, you know, in the big data ecosystem, now you're getting to the, like, you know, to this place where there's Apache projects just for data formats, you know, uh, whether it's Avril, Parquet, or Orc. Like now, like you have a choice of data formats, right? Um, and so we're making a lot of investments in, in Parquet, uh, which is a columnar data format. And it's very... Um, uh, it's, it, 
it's very fast for analytic use cases like ours. Uh, but yeah, so these are some of the uh, technology we're investing in. And as always, you know, we're, we're hiring. Uh, you know, on, on my team, we're hiring on the back end, we're hiring, we're hiring across the company. Uh, because, you know, we are uh, a growing, uh, a growing startup. Um, and it, yeah, we're always looking for, for new talent. You blog as well. Your company blogs pretty, pretty frequently, I think. Yes. Uh, yes. So, uh, we have a blog, um, uh, eng.localytics.com. Uh, we're, we're picking up steam. Uh, we have, uh, we're trying, we're concentrating on putting more and more material. Um, I'll have, a, uh, I have a blog post up there. I'll have another one soon. But yeah, we have some really interesting stuff, um, you know, across, uh, different areas of our stack. Cause, you know, I, I work on the back end, but on the front end, we have really brilliant, um, you know, JavaScript and Rails engineers, um, that post really great material. Uh, we also, you know, on our back end team, uh, we're a scholar shop and, you know, we're making heavy use of a lot of cool stuff in Scala, you know, including Scala Z and Akka. Uh, we have a lot of great stuff going on there. So our, our, our blog is definitely uh, a really fun place to go for engineers. Any other notes before we end for tonight? Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, we, we covered a lot of material. Uh, I hope uh, maybe you'll have me on again soon. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Michael Klaus. Thank you. The opening music was The Return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Translucent by YURI from the album Child's Eyes. <laughs>